From the Medical Republic, I'm Wendy John. Thanks for joining me. Associate Professor Anthony Byrne joins us today. He heads up a multidisciplinary team at St Vincent's Long COVID Clinic in Sydney. He's also the president of the Thoracic Society of New South Wales and ACT. Now, the St Vincent's Long COVID Clinic was one of the first, if not the first, multidisciplinary long COVID clinics in Australia set up at the beginning of the year. Uh, Anthony's going to give us a rundown on what's been happening, what trends have been observed and how you as GPs can help your patients who have long COVID. Thanks so much for joining us, Associate Professor Anthony Byrne. You're welcome. Thank you, Wendy, for having me on the program. Look, we appreciate it. Keen to hear, have you observed any trends? Look, we have. We've we've seen a wide spectrum of people um, with long COVID. Uh, certainly, young people uh, are not uncommon in the clinic. You know, in their twenties and thirties. And the trend that we're seeing is these people that we're seeing in our tertiary clinic are um, debilitated with their symptoms. I mean, many of them have not been able to work for months. In fact. So that's that's a disturbing trend. And we, we might be skewed perhaps with the people that we see compared to the people that some GPs would see. But uh, the other trend to say is that um, people that think they have long COVID that we're seeing, um, it would only be a handful where we actually do the investigations and we think that their symptoms are better explained by other conditions. So Is that right? Mm. So most of them do have long COVID? Most of them do, yeah. Most of the people that think they've got long COVID have got long COVID. Um, they have got other conditions that are contributing, it's it's true to say, and, uh, and that's in, in a way a good thing for us because we don't yet have any specific per se treatments for long COVID. So we, we look really hard for other things that we can find and treat um, to make people better. Right, and so if you could find those other elements that can be can be treated and that might ease some of the symptoms or some of the burden that they're carrying with long COVID. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that I really love about it is that it's uh, detective work. You know, it's just figuring out what the symptoms, because there's a bunch of them, uh, over 200 symptoms have been associated with long COVID. So it's a, a matter of, um, you know, working through it all and, and trying to attribute the symptom to a condition that may or may not be long COVID. O- often it's long COVID, but there may be other things that are making those symptoms worse. So I know most of the symptoms, you've got fatigue, you've got um, breathlessness, sleeplessness, a lot of those more common issues. What are some of the outlier symptoms, some of those last 100 symptoms that you may not expect? Oh, hair loss, uh, funny rashes, um, diff- altered circulation to the periphery, so toes, you know, the classic, the COVID toes, which are sort of these different blue and red coloured toes that are probably the the consequence of different circulation after after COVID that occurs in some people. Um, so so there, there's some um, maybe less common ones that, that we see. And how do you distinguish whether people with those symptoms actually have long COVID? It is because they're in association with other condition, other symptoms that are definitely, oh, that's long COVID for sure. Well, it comes back to the definition. So the, the World Health Organization definition of long COVID and that it's, you know, attributed to, um, you know, that it's persistent symptoms that are not otherwise explained and, they're, you know, someone's had the virus. So you've got to confirm that they've had the virus and, um, 
and then confirm that uh, these symptoms were not there pre-virus. Or if they were, um, sometimes there, there are symptoms that were there before the virus, but they're very clearly made worse. So the example of that is the person with an underlying respiratory condition. That might be COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And so they're, they're used to having cough and breathlessness. But if those symptoms of cough and breathlessness have very clearly gotten a lot worse uh, since they've had COVID and they're now four or five months down the track um, and we do a bunch of tests and we can't find another reason for it, then, well, yeah, I mean, that, that could be attributed to long COVID, those symptoms. Are any of the long haulers, so people have had long COVID, really debilitated for some two years now, are any recovering? Look, most of them are. I'm pleased to say that that it's it's actually quite rare to see somebody that's actually over a year or two years post virus worse than what they were. So th- that's the good news. The good news is that mostly um, these symptoms get better with time. That the problem is that the time is really a long time. It's um the word that's been used by many patients is glacial. Um, so it's just a, a glacial improvement and it's up up and down. So there can be sort of good days and bad days. But the overall trajectory for most people uh, is is improvement. Can there be good weeks and then bad weeks or good months and then bad months? There can. There can be. And um, and that's some, some of the confusion that, that some people find because they, they might get their initial infection with COVID and they suffer a, quite a mild illness. They have a bit of a runny nose, a bit of a fever, a bit of aches and pains, and then they feel better after a week or two. But then perhaps a month later, um, they get this sort of rebound. Um, and so that's that's not uncommon to have that sort of trajectory of mild initial illness, but then a month or two later, um, there's this overwhelming fatigue or post-exertional sort of malaise and fatigue, and um, and then dis, you know problems with memory, problems in in concentration uh, that they someone notices maybe a couple of months after their initial infection. So that's that's not an uncommon. Uh, scenario. In fact, in our stud- study, the ADAPT study, um, we, we found one in four people had, uh, you know, impairment, neurocognitive impairment, uh, after, you know, up to up to a year afterwards, and that was independent of how severe the initial infection was. One in four people, independent of. So we know that severity of COVID, acute COVID, is a risk factor for long COVID. But you're suggesting that it's there's still quite a large number of the population who are getting long COVID even with light symptoms. This is unfortunately true. So so it's very it's very clear that if you get a really severe initial infection and you end up in hospital, that you've got a good chance of going on to develop long COVID because those symptoms that were so severe take longer to recover. So if they're more than 12 weeks, then that'll meet a definition of long COVID. So we know that's the case. And, and certainly for lung outcomes and interstitial lung disease or you know scarring in the lungs, we, we see that in that population that were really sick and they ended up in hospital with pneumonia. So that's, that's not unexpected that that's the case. But, but what's somewhat unexpected is those patients that were not severe in terms of their initial illness at least its effect on the lungs, but its effect on the brain or other parts of the body body, um, initially are not bad enough to land someone up in hospital, but they they still can have these symptoms that are persistent beyond 12 weeks. 
I'm going to ask you to speculate, which you may choose not to do. We know that inflammation, we now know that inflammation exists even after an acute infection exists for about four weeks and for some people eight weeks and that's also present for people who have long COVID for an extended period of time. Do you, would you suggest that doing exercise in that first four or eight weeks after having COVID and acute COVID, even if it's only mild symptoms, would you encourage people not to push themselves too much? I'm not aware of any evidence that would suggest that, that would suggest if you, you know, if you go for a run or, or do exercise in, in the four weeks after your initial COVID infection, that that would somehow increase your risk of long COVID. So I, I'm not aware of that. And it should be said that, you know, most people that have acute COVID will not develop long COVID. You know, so that's a really important message that this is not the majority. This is a minority of people. Um, you know, that number might be 12.7%. If you look at the Amsterdam very large study of a million people comparing it to a control population, so it might be 12%, might be 5%, might be 10%, depending on who you're looking at. Um, so w there is a study, however, that, that looks at stress. And we that study was done from researchers from Harvard and published um, recently in, I think it was JAMA Psychiatry a couple of months ago. And, and they found that the, what's actually just as important, if not more important, than those risk factors for long COVID, such as you know having diabetes or having severe illness, um, just as important is the amount of stress that someone's under. Um, the amount of anxiety and stress they're under at the time of their initial infection. So if you were to use logic, that you might actually say that, you know, going for a run and doing all those sort of healthy living type things uh, are potent potentially protective rather than uh, having the opposite effect. Um, so, so that's I think that's a message that that if we're if we're less stressed and we look at those things that we know are common sense things that your mum and dad probably told you, um, or grandmother or grandfather told you about what you should do, that that actually might protect you from getting long COVID. So I think that's a that's a message that's from the literature and from the evidence. What can a GP do to help their patients the better? I think the first thing that GPs and other healthcare professionals should do is listen to your patients. <laughs> um, you know, it's really important that... that are you seeing evidence that maybe that some healthcare professionals are not? Unfortunately, that's, that, that, is, that is what I've heard and what I've heard from my patients, yeah. So that, that there are some people that are not listening, that are, you know, is this really a real thing? Um, because some of these fatigues, we're the, the symptoms we're talking about, such as fatigue, um, you can't easily measure it. You can't easily see it. So if you've got a patient telling you they're fatigued, you can't really as a doctor say you're not fatigued um, because they're telling you they are. So you, you do have to have this default setting of believing patients of when they're saying that they're fatigued. And in fact, some GPs or most, many GPs, depending on the practice, should be in a position of, uh, position of strength actually because they often would know their patient pre-COVID. You know, they know what they're medical conditions are and they know the sort of patient that they are. So when they come to them and they say, look, oh, I'm different, <laughs> I'm different now, there may be many reasons, as I say, why, why that person's feeling different now. And there is a tendency, the, the other trend that we see is that th there is a lot of overthinking here on the part of the patient. It's, it's not uncommon for patients to have a lot of time on their hands. They're not working, perhaps that they're too unwell to do those usual things. And they spend a lot of time on the internet and a lot of time on social 
media looking at things that perhaps are not, um, you know, not best practice, not evidence-based. Um, and so we have to be really careful there, I think, about, um, you know, um, going down a rabbit hole. <laughs> we, we do see some patients that have gone down lots of rabbit holes and um, and they have these sort of expectations and things. But but getting back to the question, it, it's about believing patients and um, and seeing what their problems are and then doing some simple investigations, um, just using what we know about medicine, just, just good medicine. We've got these symptoms. We want to do some detective work and see if we can figure out why a patient has these symptoms of fatigue or what they are. You know, what are the what are the common medical problems that are possible that we might be able to diagnose to make this patient better? About the rabbit holes, what are some of the alternative remedies that you've got a pretty long waiting list, right? All long COVID clinics have a long waiting yeah. list. So what yeah. are some of the rabbit holes that people are going down? Oh, there's, there's so many. I mean, you, you know, I think supplements are one. I, you know, there was someone I was speaking to recently, a researcher that was looking at doing uh, a review of this, of alternative medicine um, practices for treating long COVID, you know, because we've got these people that are really desperate. They're really desperate. And so unfortunately, there are some people that potentially can take advantage of that and say, look, supplement X or supplement Y that costs X amount of money uh, will help you. But in, but in fact, you know, there isn't the evidence for that. So there might be circumstantial things. There might be some low quality study that that shows an association with, you know, you know vitamin D, for example. Um, uh, and says that, oh, well, therefore, supplementing vitamin D will help long COVID. But, but that's not the case. You know, we don't have the evidence. We don't have a randomized controlled trial saying that giving vitamin D to a long COVID patient makes them better. I'm not aware of that study that's been done. So, so vitamin D is one example. We, we have this in other conditions, you know, for example, tuberculosis. Um, there's lots of people with tuberculosis that have low vitamin D levels. Um, but we also know that people that are unwell tend to be indoors a lot and they are not around sunlight. So their vitamin D levels will be low. So the, there's a, a phrase in medicine, which is, you know, association is not causation. You know, just because something's associated doesn't mean that it's causing. And that's, and that's something that's lost on many people. They don't, they don't get that. You know, they don't understand that, that association is not causation. You've got to look. So you've got a lot of people desperate clutching for alternative uh, remedies and approaches on social media. Uh, hyperbaric treatment, however, there's some good research that's come out of Israel. I believe the St. Vincent's Clinic is going to or is already using hyperbaric treatment? Well, we're certainly in discussions about this. So this was a study that was done. It was a randomized study that was done. And, and I actually talked to some of the experts on this, actually, that are in charge of the largest hyperbaric oxygen chamber in Australia. And um, there, there is some history to that study, um, but it's very difficult to do sham hyperbaric oxygen. Um, but they did do that in that study. So they actually had a controlled arm. Um, it's very intensive therapy, hyperbaric. But I think they gave up to 50 treatments. That's, that's a really intensive, long treatment course. Um, so, yes, there is, there is some evidence for hyperbaric oxygen. And so, th therefore, you, you do have lots of people getting to that point before that say, well, okay, well, therefore, you know, we can give extra oxygen and that'll make me better. Or, or some people proposing hyperbaric oxygen that's actually not hyperbaric oxygen. It's not in a big chamber um, getting hyperbaric oxygen. So there, there could be people that could take advantage of this and, 
and go down a, a bit of a route of giving treatment that's not evidence-based. So it's not the same thing. So we, we are in preliminary discussions um, to, to try and sort of set up a similar trial. And, and hopefully that's something that we can get up and running. But these things take time and they take money and, and we're in November and it's, that's not going to happen this year. But hopefully for next year, we could, we could look at something like this and, and try and tease out why it's working, if it's working and, and who it would work best on and what duration of treatment because that has implications as well i mean hyperbaric oxygen sessions that's a lot well also the cost i mean hyperbaric oxygen there's very few units that do this the the medicare rebates are uh few and far between and so you really have to have a strong evidence base and a very clear indication of who would most benefit for someone like the federal government to start funding this this is not going to happen anytime soon and speaking of funding How's that going? Well, it's a challenge. It should be said. I mean, we we just saw the the last uh, federal budget, and unfortunately, there's nothing in that federal budget that I'm aware of that's allocated to long COVID. Um, so that's disappointing because many other governments have allocated lots and lots of money, 1.3 billion US dollars in the, in North America and Europe. I think in North America, you can, or you know, in the United States, there's also recognition for people the long haulers, people who have long COVID for a long time, able to access disability support. So is there any connection yet with NDIS in Australia? There's not as yet, but I, uh, there is this parliamentary inquiry in the House of Representatives, and I believe they're taking submissions, and hopefully they'll come and visit us at St Vincent's. I think they are doing that in the coming weeks. And and I think one of the things that they're looking at is is should long COVID be classified as a disability, because that would have implications for for funding and and for income support and that sort of thing, so so that's important. So I think there are um, steps that are being being made, but we get back to the problem right now, and the problem right now is we've got thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of Australians that are suffering, and. We've got waiting times of over six months in a long COVID clinic. We've got GPs that are trying, are trying, and there's a lot of upskilling that's happening. I mean, this podcast, for example, but you know, there's other ones, there's articles that I've written and and other sort of sessions that myself and others are doing to try and upskill and and get GPs and specialists up on this. But this is a new condition. I mean, all of us have not learned about long COVID in our medical studies that were many years ago, right? It wasn't taught. So, so this is something that's being taught on the fly and we're learning about. And and um, so, it, it, but we've, so we've got this problem now and we need to source it now. We need to have what I would propose is that we do have specialist centers because these are complicated patients and we've got now uh, expertise in this, myself and allied health professionals and uh, you know, that has upskilled in the last almost a year in, in seeing patients. And I've been seeing patients for nearly three, two and a half years, actually. Um, so so there is there is skill in, in this. And if you don't fund it, well, it'll disappear. <laughs> it incentivize the upskilling. Have you, last question, have you had any changes in your clinical approach since the clinic opened at the beginning of the year? It's been sort of a an upward trajectory for us, I think, in terms of learning. I mean, we learn a lot from the patients. We learn what works and what doesn't work. You know, I think the physios have, have had a lot of success in in Tai Chi, for example, um, integrating that body and mind um, for for the patients. Um, 
having resources that you can point. So, because we know patients will go, you know, looking for information. They're, they're really hungry to know about this. So, so point them in the right direction, you know, so we're giving them actual resources. So on the St. Vincent's Health website, for example, there is some resources there that we've put on there that people can go to and, um, and point them in the right direction rather than getting lost down rabbit, rabbit holes. Um, you know, looking and talking to different people about the research and about um, the clinical trials and, and uh, getting people interested in that um, and, and laying the foundations for, for knowing more and, and improving the treatments. Um, because what we do know, what is certain about this virus is that it's not going away anywhere, that it's going to continue mutating, it's going to be continued to be with us and causing disease, hopefully in smaller and smaller numbers, but, but nonetheless, it's still going to be there. We need to know how to, how to treat it. That's great. Associate Professor Anthony Byrne, thank you so much for your time today. No, you're most welcome. Thanks, Wendy. That was Associate Professor Anthony Byrne, who heads up the Long COVID Clinic at St Vincent's in Sydney. I'm Wendy John. Thanks again for joining me in the Tea Room. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can search for us on your favourite podcast player and subscribe. Leave us a review if you like. If you have any news tips or want to chat, you can email me at wendy at medicalrepublic.com.au. The Tea Room is a production from the journalists at the Medical Republic. Visit us at medicalrepublic.com.au to keep up to date with all the latest news and views in general practice. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. We love to keep you informed. Thanks for tuning in.